Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entree Architect Podcast, Build Your Brand Podcast, Speak Podcast, Spaces Podcast, and now Practice Disrupted and Troxel. All your favorite podcasts in one place. GableMedia.com, that's G A. BLmedia.com. Go listen and subscribe right now. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 330, using Instagram to grow beyond your small town roots with Rafe Churchill of Bullfinch Award winner, Hendrix Churchill. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more for free at RCAT.com and Gusto easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. Rafe Churchill, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. I've, I've heard a few of your episodes. So I was very excited about the opportunity. Yeah, this will be fun. I think this is a topic that many of our listeners will find interesting. But before we get, get into the conversation, let me just uh, let people know who you are. Rafe Churchill, is the co-founder and creative director of Hendrix Churchill, an architecture and interior design firm based in Sharon, Connecticut. A third generation carpenter, Rafe grew up developing his craft as a builder and artist, and he eventually realized his passion was combining his study of architecture 
with both building and art. And in 2017, Rafe merged his practice with his wife, Heidi Hendricks, interior design practice to form their firm, Hendricks Churchill. So Rafe, I shared a little bit about you, a little tidbit. Um, I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into your story. Um, so go back as far as you would like to and uh, tell us where you discovered architecture, what inspired you to become an architect and, uh, and share that story to where we are today. Sure, thanks. Uh, well, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a, I was born a third generation carpenter or builder. Um, I grew up surrounded by carpenters and tradespeople. Uh, my grandfather, my uncle, my father, their cousins, everyone in the family was in construction. Thanksgiving dinner, we talked about construction. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's that's everything that I knew growing up. But as you know, as a as a kid and a, as a teen, uh, you know, there was art in my life. So I knew that there was something else brewing uh, slowly. Um, I ended up going uh, to school for art and architecture. I was a sculpture major in college, and and uh, I studied sculpture and architecture as a double major. Uh, after college, I went to grad school for architecture and, uh, and sculpture. But the difference is, is that I worked construction all the way through. Um, after school, I moved to New York and uh, did the struggling artist thing. And but uh, the way I made my money was as as a designer. So working in galleries and lofts in New York, uh, eventually left the city uh, with my wife Heidi. We've been together almost 25 years. Uh, I came back out to the country and did a little work in the family business and ran a construction company for a number of years with my brother and my father. Um, my brother and I eventually ran the company on our own and we had at times 28 employees. So it was very successful, but there was still something missing, right? So I had done, I had done a number of years in architecture. I studied architecture and my wife and I had bought a few properties uh, over, over these you know, years bought them, fixed them up, sold them, or bought them and rented them out. In fact, our first house, I think, cost $30,000. So we renovated that, flipped it, made some money, and just kept buying up. Uh, what happened is people kind of caught on and saw what we were doing, and we were approached. So people came to us and said, hey, you know, hey, uh, I heard about this house that you did, and maybe I was even, you know, I, uh, we probably lived there. And so they came over to check it out and they said, hey, you know what, um, not only do I want you to build it, but I'd like you to, 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 to be the designer. So uh, you know, I, I welcomed that opportunity because the first house I ever designed was when I was 16 years old. My, my father was a builder and he had a, he had a client who wanted this house and they came to us with these ideas. And my father, pretty much put this on my lap and said, so yeah, you know, you're going to do this. And we're talking pencil, paper. Yeah. Um, I was taking drafting in high school. Yeah. You're the designer in the family. Go to work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he's like, you know, do it. And so I worked with the owner. I worked with him. Keep in mind, I was 16. So, yeah. you know, I was yep. doing what I was told. Right. Yeah. Most of the time. Um, so I do remember a moment when so I, I actually had the benefit of working on that house as uh, as a as a laborer and a helper, and then I painted the place. 
the, the exterior. So I had this moment where I stood back on the hill and looked at the house and it occurred to me, I was like, Oh my God, it looks exactly like the drawing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think a lot of architects have that moment where they, yeah. where they see something for the first time that, that they designed that they've been living with in their head for all those months and years that they finally see it. Um, and there's sort of this, this impact that it has on them. Yeah. Well, it, you know, as a kid, a 16 year old, it kind of says to you, you know, you asked for it yeah, and there it is. I hope you like it. Yeah. Um, because you know, one of the things that I tell people in the office is like, we're putting lines on paper. Yes. It's an AutoCAD and it feels like it's not real, but you have a responsibility to the people in the field and to your client. And most importantly to the project, you're putting lines on paper and every line represents something. So be absolutely certain that that's what you intend. Um, you know, a mistake is a mistake, but like any note, any written description, any renderings that you provide, uh, that's what people are expecting to see. So for a 16-year-old kid, I naively was impressed with the, with what was happening because yeah. it looked exactly like the drawing. Um, so eventually, uh, back to uh, adulthood, um, I, I, I took on those opportunities and um, we had a, I had a few smaller projects and then some large projects came in where I was working with the family business uh, where they happened to be the builder. So that worked out well because as, as a young designer or architect, everybody has stories about, you know, maybe they were you know, faking it until they made it or, you know, jumped in the deep end maybe a little too soon. Yeah. I was very much in the deep end. Uh, we're talking 10,000 square foot houses, uh, timber frame from Canada. We would, we'd go up to Canada, measure video, shoot photos, come back, draw this thing, pour a foundation. And then the flatbed truck would show up with a timber frame strapped down to the deck and labeled. And then our team would assemble it. And everyone's just like, oh, man, I, I hope the kid got it right. <laughs> did, you, did you know how deep you are back then? Did you know that you were um, in the deep end? Or is that uh, looking back in hindsight? You know what? It's uh, when you grow up with it yeah. and you see your father and everybody else living it, you think it's normal. That's just the way it is. Yeah. 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 But, I, also, know, I, I also wanted to ask you one other question about growing up in a, in a contractor builder family. Um, are you the only architect or yeah. you the first architect? Um, yeah. what, was there any pushback from your family when you decided that you wanted to be an architect? No, no, uh, not at all. If anything, it was more like, uh, well, good. Maybe you can, uh, you know, make a difference because yeah. you know, it's like the builder architect. That's dynamic. why, that's why I asked that question. And, and what, you know, the family I came from, you know, my grandfather drove around in a pickup truck with tools in the back. He was not, you know, a high-end builder, yeah. highly skilled, but truly old school carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, so for my family to find out that I was going to school for architecture, they liked the idea that one of them may right. be contributing to solving yeah. the problem or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I, I have a similar story. I, I don't come from, and a whole generations of contractors, but my father was an auto mechanic. My uncle was a contractor 
And when I told him that I was going to be an architect, he said, why? <laughs> you know, and, and for right. similar reasons, because of that conflict. And, and, and I worked early on growing up uh, having that influence from my, my uncle. I very specifically worked in the field in order to, discuss, to try to learn why that dynamic existed. So when I became an architect, I could you know, relate better with the contractors that I was working with. Right. And so, so right. I, I thought it was interesting to sort of get your take on that, that, that dynamic of, of contractors and architects. Yeah, well, that dynamic still exists in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I go pretty much from one side to the other, right? So yeah. uh, my, my brother's a builder. Um, and, uh, you know, we have uh, good laughs at times because, you know, we exchange stories about our experiences on site or, you know, with clients or with people that we work with. Uh, that dynamic's not going away, right? It's just uh, the architect turns over a set of drawings. The builder's responsible to pay for it, to build it, and often they're responsible to honor a number, a price. Right. Um, that inherently just like sets the tone, right? Yeah. Um, so it's tricky. But I do remember the moment when I, I had kind of crossed over from builder to architect, where I was like. Wow, it is very different on this side of the fence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just a, a very different uh, relationship with the with the clients. Yeah, very much for sure. Very much. For sure. And and there's an air conditioned office that you work in in the summertime. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't really enjoy working construction. Um, I did it for a while. Uh, I was good at it. Um, I thrived in that environment and I was good at running a construction company and, 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 and getting the work, but, uh, I didn't find it, uh, all that satisfying. And to be honest, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult work. It's physically yeah. demanding. Um, and given the years that I worked in construction, it was, you know, it, it was kind of brutal at times physically. Yeah. Uh, and I still wear that, you know, like today I still have, you know, I mean, I, if you were to meet me, you, you know, you'd wonder, is that guy an architect or, or a contractor? You know, I'm, I'm kind of oversized in a sense. I'm six foot five. I'm very physical. And um, when I walk on a job site, the contractors are kind of just like, who's this guy? It, that's the architect. Right. Can't figure it out. Right. Um, yep. But that does that help you with, with that dynamic when you come onto the site with the experience yeah. and the knowledge that comes with it, but also your appearance and the way that you present yeah. yourself? Yeah, it definitely does. Because the first thing is, is I discourage that kind of uh, client architect versus builder sort of approach. It's very important to me that it be as equal as possible. Mm -hmm. um, I... I try to take the role, like I very much see myself as like the middleman between the two. And I try to explain to both the clients and the builder, this is how we're going to work together. This is how the process is going to go. No, no, we're not going to do that because that's not fair. That's not right. Mm -hmm. And I think your expectations might be unrealistic. Um, and I could be saying that to either person. It right. doesn't, you know, there's no assumptions to be made about who I'm talking to. Um, both sides 
have been guilty about looking out for themselves. Um, that doesn't help anybody, right? Because ultimately, aren't we, aren't we there for the project? Like that's that's why we're there. When we're finished, when we when we walk away, it's all about the house. Right. Right. Um, I I think a lot of people fall into the trap of making it all about the client or making it all about the architect. Um, and then of course some people, some builders might try to make it all about the builder. That's not going to be successful. I think that, you know, we have to work for the project first. Mm -hmm. Uh, we all work for our firm, right? We all have to maintain our firm and make sure it's sustainable. Um, but, when it comes to the to the project and that dynamic, it's all about the project, and you have to manage every team, every member of the team, to make sure that that, that that's the common goal. So, so you worked, you started your firm, you started doing these projects, you started flipping these houses that the clients would come to you. Um, when did you sort of decide, okay, this is going to be what I do? That I'm going to go to the architecture side and and, and open, open a firm. Pretty much when these prospective clients told me that's what I was going to do, <laughs> it became really quite obvious. Um, at that time, there was only, I think I had a small office of like three people. Um, so I, I left the construction business, literally like, you know, I still today, it's, I'm not comfortable with how, how we had to split up. But I said to my brother, like, look, this is a good time. We've got some money in the bank. We just finished up some big projects. It's time. I'm 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 stepping aside. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna I'm out. Um, I had a couple of guys with me on staff who were doing design work. I took them with me, and we started a new firm. And the work just came in. But you know, if you only have two or three people, you don't need a lot of work. Right. You need a couple projects at a time. Um, so that worked well. Word of mouth is the best way to get work. So for a tiny little firm like that, it was totally sustainable. We we, we just we just kept going. Right. Um, and when did when did you partner with your wife? How did that happen? That happened three years ago. So my wife had her own interior design firm for several years, which in part was the result of these clients of mine coming to our house for for a dinner. Mm -hmm. And and they looked around and said, well, we love everything that's going on in here. Why don't you do this for us? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've heard that story a hundred times where somebody saw something they liked and then sought out that person and that person became something they didn't see themselves becoming. That's pretty much what happened with, with, with Heidi. Um, and the same thing, very small firm, you know, two people. And it just kept snowballing and it was growing and growing. Um, and our clients just kept putting us together, right? Like, and I would say even to this day, even though we are partners, people that call us for, for projects in architecture often assume that Heidi will be joining the team. Uh, that, those same assumptions were made five years ago. So I would get a call from somebody uh, living in New York who wanted a country house out in, say, the Hudson Valley somewhere. They just assumed that Heidi would be joining the team. They uh, they didn't even consider the possibility that we didn't work together. Yeah, 
Yeah. And so, so you just sort of decided that it made sense to, to merge and, and start. It did. A new yeah. Eventually it became kind of obvious, right? Like why, why run two sets of books, two businesses, two, two sets of employees that when in fact it all overlaps so easily anyway. So we merged and formed, uh, the new firm. Were you ever tempted to, to go design build with your, with your construction background? Um, I was, yeah, I was, uh, what, the was reason, the, what was the decision for not doing that? Well, I, um, I decided not to do it for one. I find, I find construction very challenging. It's, it's stressful. It's, it's often contentious and it's all about money, right? Like I, I'm making broad assumptions that you know, the quality is happening. We're sticking to the schedule, but it, it's all, it's so much of it's about money. And, um, and that's true in architecture too, but it's easier in architecture, I think, to manage with, with broader strokes. When you're in construction, you, you have to, uh, you, you, you're responsible for every, every penny. Yeah. Yeah. It's very strokes, different, very different business. Yeah. The strokes are not, are not so broad. Um, uh, in addition, our goals for the design firm quickly changed from enjoying this this opportunity to do these very specific and small projects to uh, an increased interest where it became apparent that we may have a shot at doing some really decent work, some some you know, some, some strong work. Um, and I found that being a design build firm could discourage a higher level client mm -hmm. from, from approaching us. Yeah, that's interesting. This episode is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT and Gusto. You know, it might be a while before we start attending trade shows again. So what's your plan? What's your plan to stay up to date with new building products and building materials, information, all of that stuff that you find when you go to your expo? RCAT works with leading manufacturers to showcase their products and host their technical data. You can see what's new from your favorite manufacturers or find a product that you didn't even know you needed, just like you do when you walk the floor at your favorite expo. Looking for a way to keep up with your continuing education requirements? Did you know that RCAT works with manufacturers to list their latest continuing education courses so that you can get those credits while you stay at home? And best of all, like everything RCAT does, it's free. No payment, no subscriptions, no registration. You don't even need to give them your email. It's all there waiting for you for free. Use RCAT to keep up with the latest and greatest architectural products and let them know that we sent you so they know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community. Visit RCAT today at RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. RCAT.com. I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur architect because I'm a small firm architect too. I know what it's like to wear all those hats. And some of those hats are great, but some like filing taxes and running payroll, not so great. That's where our friends at Gusto come in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for small businesses like ours. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and simple management tools all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your taxes so you don't have to worry about it. 
And when you're ready to add on health benefits or a 401k for your team, they can do that too. Easy, no stress. Those old school clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work, but Gusto is. So let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do, like being an architect. Members of the Entree Architect community receive three months free when you run your first payroll. Try a demo today and see for yourself at gusto.com slash architect. That's gusto.com slash architect. Arcat and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today. Let them know that Entree Architect sent you and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So your firm today is about 10 or 11 people, right? That's right, yeah. Um, and you're in Sharon, Connecticut. I know Sharon, Connecticut well because I used to live in Westchester, New York. Um, it's a small town. And so how, what are some of the challenges of working as an architect in a small town? So Sharon's about 2,500 people. It's about two and a half hours from, from New York City. Um, a, living and working in a small town can be challenging. It's hard to find people when your office is based in Manhattan. Imagine right. finding, finding people. Look, you can put an ad out and you can get 50 applicants, right? If you're in New York, you're going to get 50 applicants for sure. If you're in Sharon, Connecticut, you might get 15 or 20. Um, it's it's difficult to say how many of those are real applicants. Right. But but the hard part is attracting the right people. So for several years, I found it very, very challenging. Um, you need to make a very focused attempt at where you're looking and who you're looking for. But I have found in the last couple of years that our best candidates approached us they were not responding to an advertisement. And how, how did that happen? What were what were they responding to? How were you getting the word out of who you were and what you did in order for them to be attracted to you? Well, I think a lot more people are aware of what we do through Instagram, for mm -hmm. one. Um, and our, our primary goal after finding good, talented people is finding um, people that have the right energy and the right interests and we want the, you know, if you have 11 people, you want to have a good mix of people, right? You want to have senior members who have experience. You want to have young people who are going to bring a certain energy to, to the studio. Um, and I think through Instagram, we have probably grown some roots that we weren't aware were, were, were available. We recently relocated uh, two families from, from uh, New York City uh, a young woman from Detroit and a guy from Miami. So and these people just all approached us. And they all found, all found you through Instagram. Uh, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So was there, when yeah. you, when you started using social media, specifically Instagram, was there a strategy from the beginning or did you just start sort of showing your work and, uh, and then recognize that there was an opportunity before you sort of strategically started using it? Well, I would say that, um, you know, anyone that uses Instagram and works full time knows that <laughs> <laughs> it's really not that much fun, right? <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, 
So initially, uh, we were encouraged by a couple of friends, you know, maybe a few years ago saying, look, you have to use this. You have to use this. And so we would just start throwing up some photos, started off with more personal stuff and then slowly leaked into uh, work, you know, projects, site visits, professional photos, interiors. And um, it just kind of snowballed. Last year, last year we had um, several thousand followers and now we're over, over 11,000. Uh, there's a point when it seems to just start to, you know, feed itself. Like, you know, we're picking yeah. up five or 10 new followers a day now. I couldn't tell you why, but I, what I can tell you is that uh, when we are active on Instagram, that's a good thing because we're actually re- reaching people. Uh, if we get too busy and uh, we don't pay attention, it kind of sits, you know, quiet for, for a little while. Right. Do you have um, a specific strategy for Instagram or is it just when you have time, you, you, you add, in, you know, add photos to it? I wish I could tell you that we had a strategy. Uh, we're working toward that because we're realizing that's, that, you know, for, for this to be sustainable out, out, out in the country, um, you, you, you really have to be on it, right? You have to pay attention. Um, the the primary goal is like let's just get these images up right let's show people what we're doing uh, once in a while you might see something behind the scenes you might see a site visit but it's pretty much we're not uh, we're not disclosing a whole lot of information about the office it's just more about the the the, the projects right right but but it's you know it's funny what people see though. Because I have people come to us and they're speaking about our projects very specifically. And I, I take it for granted. Like I, I, I really think nothing of the fact that we often do this or often do that because that's, that, that just comes naturally. Uh, I think people see what they need to see. And they're looking at thousands of photos a day. And if something jumps out, they figure out on their own why. And they find the connection. Yeah. Yeah. And just to clarify, and it, it may be obvious in our conversations, but you do high end residential work, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Just because exactly. we, we didn't mention that and there might be listeners. Yeah, who no, are that's thinking, true. Yeah. Yeah. So the work that you're, you're showing is, is high end residential and they're beautiful photographs. So they're not just snapshots, they're professional photography mostly. Um, and so it's, it's a very specific, uh, feed that you're looking at when you, when you follow that Instagram channel. Right. That's true. No, we, we definitely put an effort into photography. Um, you know, when running a business, that's a line item in your overhead, right? It's part of the marketing. Um, you, you have to invest. You can't, you can't avoid self-promotion. You know, the, the one thing I learned years ago in my early 20s when I was an artist in New York was uh, you're not going to make it without self-promotion. And as a 22-year-old, that wasn't going to happen for me. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there yet. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you know, in my 30s, you have a couple of kids and a mortgage and you wake up one day and you're like, okay, you, you just, you have to get over this. You have to tell people who you are, what you do, and that you do it well. Yeah. You can't be afraid to tell them that you do it well. Yeah. And, and being, uh, being in Sharon in a small town, um, 
it's complicated. And so having these tools to be able to reach out to the world and show the world what you do not only brings in quality employees, but bring, probably brings in some projects. Are there other things that you're doing um, to be able to practice successfully in a small town? Because I get that question all the time from small town architects who are struggling and they just don't know how to get the work and how to get the quality employees. Are there, are there specific suggestions that you can make to those architects on how to do what well, you're doing? I, yeah. Um, as far as getting the work, I think it requires a willingness to travel, right? You certainly don't want to limit yourself to, say, a 45-minute radius. We have, uh, we have a project in Austin, Texas. We have one in Falmouth, Maine. Uh, we have projects in Connecticut and New York State that are all within three hours. Uh, it's rare for us to have a project half an hour, you know, uh, it, even in Sharon, for that matter. Um, we're, we're willing to travel for the work. And anybody who's had any experience with that knows that at first it can seem like a daunting responsibility, right, to do this. But the truth is, if it's well managed and you schedule your site visits and you hire the right builder, then it goes pretty smoothly. Um, but you, there has to be a willingness to work beyond your comfort zone, right? And most people are very comfortable within 45 minutes of their office. Um, and as far as uh, staffing, I, I honestly, we're still trying to figure out how we attracted s such a good team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's so like, yeah, we have, there's 11 of us, and I honestly can't imagine any of them leaving. I mean, it's a, it's a very solid group. Um, and they range from 21 years, you know, up. Um, so that's, so that's great. You know, it's, uh, you want a, a good mix, but still youthful firm. Yeah. Because and you want, because you want there to be a future. It was interesting what you had said before when you said that those people were being attracted through Instagram and that, that you were willing to relocate them. And so I think often what happens at architects sort of look within that immediate, uh, geographic range and that's it. That's sort of, they look at their pool of people there rather than looking at the entire world as a, an opportunity for bringing people into your firm and finding the best of the best and sort of presenting yourself as a, as a firm like you do on Instagram, attract the, 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 lots of people to you, and then you can pick out the people who you feel best, who are most qualified and have the best you know, sort of character in the way that you relate with them, the personalities that these people have. All of that lends to the culture that you've built at your firm, right? Yeah, you know, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we've worked towards, you know, and I've worked at other firms and my, and my favorite thing to do is to talk to people while they're still working at, at another firm. And you hear the stories about how, um, and I don't want to offend anybody when I say this, but, but like you hear stories about how nobody's talking, everybody has earbuds on. Yeah. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to talk to the principal or a lead designer or anybody without an appointment, or maybe at the end of the day or next Tuesday. Um, and the culture is just—it's just awful. People just sit at a desk for eight to ten hours a day, miserable, um, stuck on interior elevations of a powder room. And um, in our firm, there, I you know. We're, we're always walking through the office, right? So we're in, we're in an old house in the center of Sharon, right on the green. So it's not like a big, beautiful open space. 
it's several different rooms, right? There were probably bedrooms, dining room, things like that at one time. Um, so we have say two to four people in, in a room and we'll spend our time walking through the building all day, stopping and talking to people, going over, over things. Uh, and then we, you know, we'll, we'll have team meetings where we sit down at the conference table and review drawings. But I think the, the, the best way is to make yourself available and don't make it about you because as soon as you start making it about you, you're going to lose track of like, of the, you know, of the, of, of the, of the firm and the people that make up your team. Um, you know, the stories I hear from other offices are just, they're not healthy, right? It's not, it's not a healthy work environment. Um, I've, I've heard stories from clients where they're crying on the ride home after a design meeting with their architect. Like that should never happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, you shouldn't make people feel bad um, because you're prioritizing the design or what you you know consider to be the most important part yeah. of the project. Um, so you know some people might say that we have like a lateral hierarchy or a flat organization. Um, there's definitely a structure in place, but every voice is heard, and somebody maybe helping out with marketing one day but then doing a deep dive on interiors or working on specifications for four or five days. It, you know, we, we try to jump around. Yeah. Earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned that one of the keys to success out in the field is to put the project first. And it's not yeah. about the architect. It's not about the contractor. It's not even about the owner. It's about the project and coming together. Do you, and it sounds like you do, it sounds like with your firm, that it's not about you, it's not about Heidi, it's not about even the team, it's about the firm. Is that is that sort of how your culture is built, that it's really firm first? That's our goal, yeah. I mean, look, it, it's hard to maintain that because there are days when everybody looks at you to solve problems or fix something or eat, like even now, everyone just wants to know, like, how are we doing? Are we, you know, do we have work three months out? Do we have work six months out? Um, and you know, you have to be careful because you can get sucked into that, right? You can, you know, answering all those questions, putting out all those fires. So there are days where you catch yourself. Um, but generally, you know, if you're going to make changes in the office, whether it's with, uh, with software or project management and even marketing, um, you want to talk to the team and get a sense of where their interests fall what their experience is and how, how they can, can actually contribute. Cause there's a very good chance that somebody in the office has a better understanding of what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and I think if you try to solve these problems on your own, you'll, you'll fall short and you might make a fool of yourself while doing it. Um, that's the real benefit of having a diverse group of people. Yeah. Is, is that you're going to get different answers. Yeah. And, and, um, the maturity of the leader to be able to recognize that there are other voices and there are valuable uh, opinions coming from those voices and, and being able to accept them, I think is really an important piece of the puzzle in terms of the leaders of that firm. Yeah. That takes a little while. Yeah, it does. It's, it's hard to do, yeah. but when you do yeah. and, and you get that feedback and you recognize that that's a, 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 a very important way of being a, a, a uh, a quality leader, 
and you see the results of that, it, it gets easier because you, you, get the, you get the results of, right. of getting that information. Um, before we wrap up, I, w- I wanted to, um, to, to ask you, you hinted at it a little bit, but you know, we're, we're recording this mid-April 2020. You know, we're about a month into the whole coronavirus crisis, quote unquote. Um, how is your firm doing? And are you doing some specific things to sort of plan for the future as, as we move forward in, on this? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, so we're, go, we're entering our fifth week of working remotely. Um, pretty much all the construction projects have closed, have shut down. Which is which is good because that's the only safe way yeah. to move to move uh, forward. Um, so we've got 11 people working remotely. That happened overnight. We literally sat down on a Monday morning, four and a half weeks ago or something, and started to talk about it. And about 10 minutes into it, it was like, okay, so obviously we're going to start working remotely tonight. <laughs> right. Um, so it was a bit of a scramble. Uh, the first week was really challenging. Uh, if you talk to the individual team members, which of course I did, they all thought it was fine and it was going really, really well. But that's because you've got you know nine people working on one or two projects, right? Um, I was working like 16 hours a day, <laughs> just trying. Right. You know, you're setting up these Zoom calls. These calls go from anywhere from 15 minutes to two hours. And uh, come 5.30, yeah, everybody else stopped working. But I was like, oh, good. Now I can start working. Yeah. Um, So I found that first week really challenging. The second week was a little easier. Now we're entering our fifth week. And uh, it feels pretty good. Um, Now we're starting to make a real effort uh, to communicate more just socially, Mm -hmm. not just about the work. So Heidi's talking to everybody about like each person every day contributes an update about, you know, basically the stuff that they would be talking about if we were sitting five feet away from them. Yeah. You know, what's going on in your life? What'd you watch last night? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? Um, that's important. Yeah. And, and otherwise we were just like machines just plugged in. Right. And, and the culture that you built, depended on the the building that you were in right that 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 yeah. old building and the way that people can communicate and the the um uh the spontaneity that comes with being in a in a building like that when you move to remote places and everybody's working on their own that happenstance and that that spontaneity needs to turn into a process right in order for that yeah. to happen in order for the culture to not disintegrate that culture that was so important when you're all together pieces of that that make that culture the the culture that it is needs to become more intentional yeah no absolutely and you have to be careful because if you're trying to manage these two or three teams of people and you literally just want to get through your your list you could just start burning through people right um, and pushing and not listening yeah and uh i i'd like to think that we caught ourselves before that started to happen yeah. But I, I could definitely see people burning out uh, if, if, if they're not, if they don't feel like they're part of something again. Yeah. Yeah. We had, sure. we had spoken to a consultant named um, uh, Jane Walton on earlier episodes, uh, and she specifically talked about the first thing 
that you need to do is is build those relationships with your with your team and put in the systems to be able to to uh, allow them to be heard and for you to be right. able to hear them uh, because those things don't happen automatically when you're on a Zoom call. Those things need to be put in place uh, so they so they know when and where and how those communications will happen, which will allow them to to not only be heard from a business point of view, but from a social point of view. Right, for sure, absolutely. Yeah, so, and and you know it's important for people to grow during this time. We're not, we, you know, we're, we're not just going to sit here and wait. Yeah, like I mean, we we have people. It's only been a few weeks, four weeks, but I've seen progress being made because some of these individuals are being asked to step up. Right, they, right. They're, they're not sitting next to, to their senior person anymore. So they actually have to take on some additional responsibility. Yeah. And they can't just turn their head and ask a quick question. They actually now have to decide, do I really want to ask that question or can I just make this happen? Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Rafe, this has been a really uh, interesting conversation. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody here at the podcast. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Um, well, we talked about that a little bit. Um, yeah. I would say that what we're realizing is the most important thing is finding the right people to join the team. And it's not a short-term plan. We're talking long-term plan. So um, I recently turned 50 years old and I'm realizing, you know, okay, like I'd like to think that's young, but let's let's realize we got to get some people in place because this is a good, strong thing we have going and it shouldn't end. It doesn't have to end. Uh, and if everybody's a, a player, then things won't change, right? If I'm less involved someday, things won't change. So if you want to build a a, a, a firm that's sustainable and, and might may, maybe will outlive you, uh, it's all about the people. Yeah, it, yeah. You, you have to invest. Excellent advice. Uh, his name is Rafe Churchill. The firm's name is Hendricks Churchill. You can find out more information about Rafe and the firm at HendricksChurchill.com. We'll have a link on our show notes. Uh, definitely check out his Instagram, the firm's Instagram. I think it's Hendricks Churchill. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah we'll have links to all of that on the show notes. Uh, Rafe, this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you for coming by and spending some time with us and sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Uh, you bet. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to episode 330. The link to the show notes and the link to share with a friend. Please, one friend, that's all. It's simple, simple, simple ask here. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 330. That's entrearchitect.com slash episode 330. Type that up right now into your Facebook, into your Twitter, into Instagram. You put a little Instagram graphic, say, hey, I listen to Entree Architect podcast. Listen to episode 330. You could do that too. You could, you could send it in an email. You could tap your friend on the, on the shoulder. Well, actually, you can't tap your friend on the shoulder. Your friend's not there. So email it to him. Email him or her this link, entrearchitect.com slash episode 330. If you like this podcast, you are going to love our new multimedia network, Gable Media. All your favorite architecture podcasts, all in one place. They're all there. Listen and subscribe right now at gablemedia.com. That's G A B L media.com. 
Be well, my friends. Be healthy, be happy, safe, and secure. Thanks for listening today. Now more than ever, love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.